Well, good morning to everybody. Uh, welcome to our fellowship this morning. And um, I guess just a, a, a brief word of introduction. Um, many of you will recognise that uh, uh, our um, our schedule, as it were, our plans have been interrupted somewhat by COVID again. And uh, we were to be meeting at the hall, and today was to be the first of our uh, friend day. And um, the idea being that we would invite friends along and uh, the teaching and activities, including a congregational lunch, would all be purposefully designed around uh, the needs and interests of a non-Christian audience. But, of course, that hasn't happened uh, for this um, for this Sunday. Uh, we're rolling that forward to the first of next month. So Nathan Wilson will be leading us in our first friend day next month. But today I thought we would still run with the lesson uh, that is relevant to evangelism, but for the ears of Christians more so perhaps than uh, the non-Christians. Though I, though I would hope that a, a, a non-Christian would uh, find this uh, both informative and, and somewhat important, but, but I really am sort of pitching it at, at a level for, uh, for fellow Christians. And, and the obvious connection with the theme of evangelism, which is a, a major theme uh, for the Point Church in 2022, is the question, can we still believe the Bible? And I'd like to just spend a little bit of time this morning with you uh, talking about, thinking about ad- addressing that, that question. And I begin with the, the graphic there uh, and the question, is the Bible a divine product or a human product? And, of course, I want to argue that biblically speaking, truthfully speaking, the, the answer is actually it's, it's, it's both. But the fact that it's both human and divine tends to cause a great deal of confusion, uh, particularly for those who are inclined to gravitate towards one extreme or the other, to accept the divinity of the Bible but then pretty much uh, ignore or, or diminish at least the human uh, character of the Bible. And then, of course, there's the other extreme that uh, dismisses uh, any divine claims of the Bible and says it's purely a, and simply a, a human uh, product. Now, uh, just quickly to, to raise this context, uh, this question in the context of the Scripture. For example, you'll notice in uh, the New Testament, Psalm 110 is referred to on two different occasions, or rather referred to on the same occasion, but reported by two different uh, gospel writers. And Luke in chapter 20, verse 41, or verse 42 rather, describes the authorship of Psalm 110 as David. David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. But you'll notice in Matthew chapter 22, uh, skipping down to verse 43, Matthew reports the authorship of Psalm 110 this way. He said to them, how is it then that David by the Spirit, Matthew, of course, putting these words in Jesus' mouth, David by the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And so we're left with the question, well, which is it? Is it David or is it David by the Spirit, whatever that means? And, of course, the fact is it's both. It is David, the human agency, involved in the writing of, in this case, Psalm 110. But David, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, as Matthew reports Jesus describing it, as David by the Spirit, calling him Lord, etc., etc. 
two very important contexts for us to consider when we think about the nature of Scripture. First of all, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out, or this is a term that we're familiar with, we often hear inspired, breathed out, inspired by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So here we have the image of uh, inspiration of scripture where we've got the divine initiative combining with human agency, a guiding hand as it were of God upon the shoulder of the prophet. But of course it's not talking about possessing in any direct sense or, or dictation as it were. Uh, the, the process is, is more mysterious and more subtle than that. God supervised the process described by Peter as being carried along by the Holy Spirit in such a way that what the prophet wrote was what God wanted him to communicate. Hence, it is the inspired word of God, a message originating from God without, you'll note, overriding the personality of the prophet. The purpose of inspired scripture is to teach, reprove, correct and train in righteousness any and every person who desires to live as icons or image bearers of God. Strictly speaking, the inspiration of scripture and the inerrancy that that implies, God after all does not make mistakes, applies only to the original autograph authored by the prophet who was carried along by the Holy Spirit. Because there are no autographs known to have survived to this day, our attention shifts to the reliability of copies of the originals. The copyists and editors of Scripture were not carried along by the Holy Spirit in the same manner as the prophet who authored the original document. And that's important for us to understand. There is no claim historically that the copyists of Scripture, that is those who copied the originals and then copied the copies of the copies, etc., are inspired by God. A lot of, I think, misconception, both among believers and unbelievers, uh, becomes uh, problematic, worries people because of the uh, the failure to recognise that. The, the claim of Scripture is that the original autographs the original writings by the prophet was inspired and therefore without error. But we know as a matter of fact, objectively looking at and studying the many, many, many thousands of copies that we have of the original, both in the form of uh, 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 copies in the same language and also translations, early translations into different languages. We have both fragments and even whole books and whole collections of books, some in excess of 25,000 of them, 
But it is obvious that there are errors and variations in and between the copies. I would nonetheless argue that God providentially safeguarded the faithful transmission and preservation of Scripture through the centuries. And I'm hoping to bring together these two um, realities so as to avoid the extremes that we see in the world today in terms of how people view uh, and regard the Scriptures. I believe the summary observations at the end of this lesson justify my claim. For the purpose of this study, we're going to focus on the New Testament manuscripts upon which our modern translations are based. So the key question is, can we be confident that our modern translations of the New Testament, so when we pick up our our NIV or our ESV or our NRSV, whatever King James Version, whatever translation, when we pick that up, can we be confident in as much as it does provide a good translation that it is a faithful representation of the message that was delivered by God through the prophet in the original autographs? So there's the process there, the original, leading through the copies to the modern translations that we have readily available to us today. The well-credentialed New Testament textual critic, Bart Ehrman, published a remarkable book in 2005 called Misquoting Jesus, The Story Behind Who Changed the Bible and Why. And I'm focusing on Bart Ehrman because um, in terms of biblical scholars, uh, he has been very outspoken and proactive in uh, almost what, what you might describe as a campaign to undermine the, uh, our, our trust in, in the scriptures. And it's important. This isn't just a, um, uh, a, uh, you know, a, some fictitious writer like a, what was his name? Dan something. Um, the, um, uh, the writer of the, uh, the Da Vinci Code. Um, uh, you know, I mean, he's, he's interested in creating controversy and conspiracy theories and whatnot as an author to sell his books. And he's done remarkably well in that regard, incidentally. But, but he has no credentials. He has no credibility as a scholar. Um, he doesn't know what he's talking about except for creating a, a good intriguing story, uh, or fabricating a good intriguing story. But Bart Ehrman's someone very different. You see, Ehrman, I've got noted in the, the footnotes there, he, uh, co-authored, uh, a standard text in the world of New Testament, uh, criticism, uh, alongside of no one lesser than Bruce Metzger, who was at the time the undisputed world expert. Um, the whole, the whole idea though, when Bart Ehrman speaks about textual criticism, he's speaking with considerable credibility, considerable authority. That's what I want to focus upon him, um, recognizing of course that even scholars can, uh, let their personal biases and agendas get in the way of good scholarship. The book was not remarkable because of its content. It presents in, in language accessible to the layperson, the basics of a long established academic discipline, namely the textual criticism of the New Testament, which deals with things like the number and nature of the manuscripts, the, the process of copying and the kinds of mistakes introduced and, and, and reasons as to perhaps why those, uh, those mistakes might have occurred. But what was remarkable was that a book about such a topic made it into the New York Times bestseller list and remained there for several months after it was released. What was appealing to the media and the general public 
was not the information it contained, which was, after all, nothing new, but the impression given by a credible scholar that we could not recover the message of the original letters that make up the New Testament. In other words, you can't really trust the Bible, is his basic agenda. And you'll notice there in yellow, this is a quotation from Bart Ehrman, his book, and just appreciate the sense that he's trying to communicate here, the kind of uh, inference that he's, that he's making. What good is it, says Ehrman, to say that the autographs or the originals were inspired? We don't have the originals. We have only error-ridden copies. Scholars differ significantly in their estimates. Some say there are 200,000 variants. Some say 300. Some say 400,000 or more. There are more variations among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. And, of course, we read that, and especially for the non-specialists, we think, oh, my goodness, how on earth could you take the Bible seriously if it's got that many mistakes, that many errors? How on earth could it be regarded as being trustworthy, a reliable guide in life? And anybody coming away from those statements would be justified in in having that impression and making those assumptions. And tragically, many people in the modern Western world today do carry around that sort of assumption precisely based upon claims like this. And so I want to spend a bit of time this morning explaining where Ehrman is coming from and uh, disarming the great damage that he seeks to cause. Quite mischievous, in my opinion. The idea is something like this. We begin with the autograph, the original document written. Let's say that's the Apostle Paul, for example, writing the book of Romans. So assuming the claim of scripture of inspiration, we begin with zero errors. But of course, we all know from the game variously named, I know it as Chinese Whispers, a kid's game where where somebody starts with an original message uh, and you pass it on, whisper it into the ear of the person next to you, and then they do the same with the person next to them. And it's amazing how how different the end can be, the end message, from the original. And, of course, the impression given is that that's precisely what happened with the transmission of the Bible, the transmission of the various books that make up the Bible. So we've got the autograph, the beginning point, the beginning message. Zero errors. But then we've got the copy of the original, which introduces 10 errors. And then we've got a copy of the copy of the original, which introduces an additional 50 errors. Then we've got a copy of the copy of the copy of the original, 250 more errors. And at this point in time, it's very fashionable. You throw in a conspiracy theory. Oh, you know, uh, Emperor Constantine uh, burned all of the Bibles of one perspective and just kept the, kept the bias of, of another, all of that sort of stuff, which has no basis in history. But again, um, uh, for people that are, are inclined to sell books, whether they're scholars or whether they're uh, fiction writers, um, uh, a conspiracy theory sells well. There's no end of uh, a, a desire, an audience for such things. Then you've got Things, of course, explode at this point. A copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. You know, we're up to well over 2,500 errors. And so, so it goes through the generations, through the centuries, until, as Bart Ehrman 
notes, there is anywhere between 200,000 and 400,000 errors. And the impression he gives is that between in the 1350 to 1400 years between the writing of the original and the end of the process of copying of copying of copying, which ended incidentally in um, uh, around 1450 with the uh, uh, the Gutenberg uh, printing press, uh, the Gutenberg Bible, which the Bible was the first mass-produced uh, or reputed to be the first mass-produced book printed in about uh, 1450. If you look in your library and, and you come across a, a Gutenberg Bible original, um, I'd be very happy to talk to you about purchasing it. I'd, I'd give you a few hundred dollars, no worries at all. It's, it's, it's counted among some of the most rare and therefore most valuable items in, uh, in human history. But because of the nature of printing, of course, that ended the, the process of hand copying from one copy to another. So we so we think about a period of, say, 1,400 years, how many errors accumulated in that time? Well, we're told 200,000 to 400,000. So how could you possibly, with any credibility, think that a copy with 400,000 errors in it even remotely represents or reflects the truth of, of the original? So Bart Ehrman's conclusion, we cannot be confident that we can even know what the Apostle Paul wrote in the book of Romans. Compare and despair. 200,000 to 400,000 variations between the original and what we have today. That's the inference. The Bible, therefore, is full of mistakes. Well, Ehrman is right on the facts as far as they go. There are about 130,000 words in the New Testament Yet the surviving manuscripts, the handwritten copies, reveal perhaps as many as 400,000 individual times where the wording disagrees between them. The common Chinese whispers misconception presupposes, however, both oral and linear transmission, neither of which apply to the New Testament. Berman's not very clear on, 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 on clarifying that little fact for people. First, the transmission was done in writing. And written manuscripts can, of course, objectively be tested in a way that oral communications cannot. For example, notice this process, if you will. I'm just citing here from uh, the Apostle Peter, Second Peter, uh, a medley of statements he says here, beginning in chapter 1, continuing through to chapter 3. Therefore, said Peter, I intend to keep on reminding you of these things, though you know them already and are established in the truth that has come to you. So here's Peter writing to his audience, and he says, I'm writing to remind you of the things that you already know. They might have even sat at the feet of Peter as he orally communicated the gospel and all of the things that pertain to the church and the truth uh, pertaining to, to Christianity and, and all of those things were delivered orally by the apostles in the first century who also we will notice went on to write those very same things the same apostles the first century in that same generation not 100, 200, 500 years later I think it right, says Peter, as long as I'm in this body, to refresh your memory since I know that my death will come soon, as indeed our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. 
and I will make every effort so that after my departure, after I'm gone, after I'm no longer here to talk to you directly, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Well, how, how's that, Peter? How are you doing that? Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. And because the pattern becomes very clear at this stage. Scripture wasn't an afterthought. In fact, Peter goes on in this same uh, sentence, verse 2 there, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets, which is code for what we call the Old Testament scriptures, and the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles, which is code for what we know as the New Testament scriptures, the content of the New Testament scriptures. Just as Brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people uh, distort as they do the other scriptures to their own description, to their own destruction. Uh, Peter here clearly associating the writings of Paul, half of which, which makes up half of our New Testament scriptures, incidentally, as scripture. Peter recognized, Paul recognized that his letters were at the time that they were being written, were the word of God. There's no mystery about this process here. And no time you will notice for any Chinese whispers conspiracy theories. It all occurred in the same generation, beginning with the oral proclamation of the gospel and followed up in the same generation with the written testimony to that end. Second, the transmission was not linear, but geometric. That is, one letter birthed 10 copies, which generated 100, which generated 1,000, and so on. It is a geometric series. And let me illustrate it this way. And this is very important for us to understand. When we are, when we're confounded with figures like 400,000 errors, 400,000 variations, we begin with the transmission of the Bible, the original, the inspired autograph. Then we have the copy, the handwritten copy of the original. And maybe there were three handwritten copies of the one original, maybe many more. But then each copy of the original undergoes its own process of copying. So we've got copies of the copy. And you'll notice the multiplying effect happening here. And then, of course, copies of the copies of the copies are made. And so it goes and continues in geometric fashion as it, as it expands exponentially. Now, I want to point out something very simple, but it's easy to overlook. If one spelling error were made in the original copy of the original and that that one spelling error is reproduced in any and all subsequent copies of that copy. What might be counted as hundreds, maybe even thousands of errors is actually just representing one mistake, one variant, one spelling mistake. With that phenomenon in mind, you can readily recognize how you can quickly explode into numbers like two or three or four hundred thousand errors because of that multiplication effect, the geometric series. Um, I remember hearing this story 
many years ago in the context of encouraging people to take a simple but direct uh, approach to evangelism. Um, the idea was that that when we think small and just focus on teaching the gospel to one person and encouraging and teaching that one person to teach another person, if we can get that momentum, if we can get that process going where one will teach another who will teach another who will teach another, within a relatively short period of time, a matter of months, maybe years, you would be absolutely amazed at the number of people who were taught the gospel through that process. But it seems so simple. Sometimes we overlook, because of its simplicity, we overlook its its value. The story was introduced to me in the context, I don't know if it's true or not, but it was introduced in the context of uh, a king of Persia who was getting a bit big for his boots. And so one of his key advisors invented the game of chess, so the story goes. And, of course, if you're familiar with the game of chess, you recognise, I guess, two things. First, the most important person or character on the chessboard is the king. Um, the name of the game is to capture the king, the, the, the opposition's king. And then once the king is cornered, as it were, can't escape, then that's the end of the game. So the king, hands down, is the most important entity on the chess board. But, of course, the king is also very limited in what he can do, a little bit versatile. He can move in any direction, but only one step at a time. And so he's very much dependent upon the support and protection of his queen, of his bishops, of his knights. And the advisor's point to the king was, don't get too big for your boots. You need us. You need your advisors. You need your military leaders. You need your queen. All to surround you and to protect you. And the king was so impressed, so the story goes, with the wisdom of this counsellor. He said, this is, this is, this is just, this has saved my reign. What can I do to reward you? And this is what the advisor said. Well, there are 64 squares on that chessboard, O king. I would like you to give me one grain of wheat in the first square. And then for every other square, every subsequent square, double the number. And at the end of the 64 squares, I'll take that as my as my reward. And the king thought, you've got to be kidding. No worries, go for it. And then another advisor said, oh, king, you've just given away all of the wheat in the kingdom, in the empire. And because the king puzzled, how's that? Well, this is how, simple mathematics. If a chessboard were to have wheat placed upon each square such that one grain were placed on the first square, two on the second, four on the third, and so on, doubling the number of grains on each subsequent square, how many grains of wheat would be on the chessboard at the finish? If you've not heard this before, I wonder what your answer to that might be. You know, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand maybe, a million maybe. 
The problem may be solved using simple addition with 64 squares on a chessboard. If the number of grains doubles on successive squares, then the sum of grains on all 64 squares is 1 plus 2 plus 4 plus 8 plus and so forth for the 64 squares. The total number of grains can be shown to be 2 to the power of 64 minus 1. Now that's not that intimidating, is it, until you recognise what that number represents. Um, 18 quintillion, 446 quadrillion, 742, 44 trillion, sorry, 73 billion, 709 million, 551,615, over 1.4 trillion metric tonnes, which is over 2,000 times the annual world production of wheat, which in the period 2020 to 21 was an estimated 772.64 million metric tonnes. Pretty amazing stuff. My purpose is simply to highlight how do we get to numbers like 200,000, 400,000 errors? Well, really, it's the same few errors repeated many times. That's how we get to that sort of number. Greg Kukul offers this helpful illustration to describe the process. And this is important because it highlights how we can still be confident in, in, in the um, reliability of uh, through textual criticism of the uh, the copies that we have and the um, the translations that are based upon those copies. Pretend your aunt Sally learns in a dream the recipe for an elixir that preserves her youth. When she awakes, she she scribbles the complex directions on a sheet of paper, and then runs to the kitchen to mix up her first batch of Sally's secret sauce. In a few days, she is transformed into a picture of radiant youth. Aunt Sally is so excited, she sends detailed handwritten instructions to her three bridge partners. Aunt Sally is still in the technological dark ages, of course, with no photocopier or email. They, in turn, make copies for ten of their own friends. All goes well until one day Aunt Sally's schnauzer eats the original script. In a panic, she contacts her friends who have mysteriously suffered similar mishaps. The alarm goes out to the others who received copies from her card-playing trio in an attempt to recover the original wording. Sally rounds up on all the surviving handwritten copies, 26 in all. When she spreads them out on the kitchen table, she immediately notices differences. 23 of the copies are virtually the same, save for misspelled words and abbreviations littering the text. Of the remaining three, however, One lists ingredients in a different order. Another has two words inverted, mix then chop, instead of chop then mix. And one includes an ingredient not mentioned in any other list. Do you think Aunt Sally can accurately reconstruct her original recipe from this evidence? Of course she can. The misspellings and abbreviations are inconsequential, as is the order of ingredients in the list. Those variations all mean the same thing. The single Inverted words stand out and can easily be repaired because one can't mix something that hasn't been chopped. Sally would then strike the extra ingredient reasoning. It's more plausible one person would mistakenly add an item than 25 people would accidentally omit it. 
Even if the variations were more numerous and diverse and the copy spanned many generations, the original could still be reconstructed with a high level of confidence with enough copies, the more the better, and a little common sense. This in simplified form, very simplified, but you get the point, is how scholars do textual criticism, an academic enterprise used to reconstitute all documents of antiquity, not just religious texts. And what, after all, exactly is meant by a textual variation? According to manuscript expert Daniel Wallace, a textual variant is simply any difference from a standard text, that is a printed text, a particular manuscript, etc., that involves spelling, word order, omission, addition, substitution, or a total rewrite of the text. Note that any difference, no matter how slight, is added to the total count. What exactly are those differences? Well, they can be divided into two categories, significant variants and insignificant ones. An insignificant variant is absolute, has absolutely no bearing on our ability to reconstruct the original text. The meaning remains the same regardless of which reading is the original. For example, well over half the variants, yes, more than 200,000, are spelling errors due either to accident or different choices of phonetic spelling, crani as, as opposed to crini. A host of others are immaterial differences in abbreviation or style. Here's how Daniel Wallace sums up the variations. Spelling differences or nonsense readings that result if you accidentally skip a line, for example. But mistakes that are easily picked up and and corrected. Uh, Inconsequential word order, uh, Christ Jesus instead of Jesus Christ and and the use of synonyms. Uh, Meaningful, though non-viable variants. And there are a number of these in Scripture. Uh, the, the comma Johannium, First uh, John chapter five, which is generally regarded by scholars as a later edition, uh, not included in John's original, uh, and it relates to the um, uh, the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, the ending of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, there are at least three contenders: uh, the short ending, uh, a, a, a medium length ending, and uh, the longer. Uh, ending that we're probably more familiar with, but he's certainly disputed as to as to whether that's authentic or not. At the very least, it represents a very early tradition in the church. But again, we're well aware of all of this stuff, and it have been for but well, in the case of the ending of Mark for centuries. There's nothing new here. Uh, the story of the woman charged with adultery in uh, in John chapter eight, another example, because it's not included in some manuscripts. There is some doubt, and in fact. Uh, the textual evidence would suggest that it probably isn't part of the original. But all of these things clearly noted in your reference Bibles. There is no cover-up. There is no, oh, this is what they, they wish you didn't know or wouldn't find out about. None of that nonsense. It's all there for anybody who cares to recognize. Variants, finally that are both meaningful and viable. And there are a few of these. For example, in Mark chapter 1 and verse 41, the contenders are Jesus was indignant with the leper or Jesus was moved with compassion towards the leper. The textual evidence really is difficult to separate. It's hard to tell which one would have been the original. But I want to point out that notice how insignificant that is 
in terms of anything we do or with that we believe as Christians. As interesting as all that might be, it's not of great consequence in that sense for the life and faith of, uh, of the Christian. Wallace's last category, that's those who are both meaningful, the variants that are both meaningful and viable, constitutes much less than 1% of all variations. In other words, more than 396,000 of the variants have no bearing on our ability to reconstruct the original. Even with the textually viable differences that remain, the vast majority are theologically insignificant. These facts Ehrman himself freely admits. Most of the changes found in our early Christian manuscripts have nothing to do with theology or ideology. Far and away, the most changes are the result of mistakes, pure and simple, slips of the pen, accidental omissions, inadvertent additions, misspelled words, blunders of one sort or another. And that statement, though, he makes, goes to great effort, great lengths to give a different impression to the reader. So in summary, citing here Craig Blomberg, who's one of the, um, uh, I guess you might say, premier evangelical scholars in this field, um, and writing in direct response to the claims of his fellow uh, textual critic and scholar, uh, Bart Ehrman. By now, the point should be clear. The vast majority of textual variants are wholly uninteresting except to specialists. When one hears numbers like 400,000 variants, if that number is even accurate, one must remember that they spread across 25,000 manuscripts. A large percentage of these variants cluster around the same verses or passages. Less than 3% of them are significant enough to be presented in one of the two standard critical editions of the Greek New Testament. Only about a tenth of 1% are interesting enough to make their way into footnotes in most English translations. It cannot be emphasised strongly enough that no orthodox doctrine or ethical practice of Christianity depends solely on any disputed wording. There are always undisputed passages one can consult that teach the same truths. The long ending of uh, the Gospel of Mark, for example, we're familiar with that because it it, uh, very much supports our understanding of the necessity of baptism. Uh, 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 He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, etc. That's why we're so familiar with that context of Scripture. And some might get, get a bit nervous if you think, oh, if that's not really in the Bible, then... Well, that makes no difference at all. It doesn't teach anything that's not taught elsewhere in the New Testament. There are always undisputed passages one can consult that teach the same truths. Tellingly, in the appendix to the paperback edition of Misquoting Jesus, Ehrman himself concedes that, and this is quoting, essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variance in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. It is too bad, notice, that this admission appears in an appendix that is tucked away in a section that most people wouldn't read at the back of the book and comes only after repeated criticism, effectively suggesting the the contrary. Conclusion. Yes, 
we can be confident that our modern New Testament translations are based upon manuscript evidence that accurately, to the degree of 99 plus percent, conveys the content and meaning of the original autographs. God has providentially safeguarded the faithful transmission and preservation of scripture through the centuries.